This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I'd like for you to take God's word and go with me to the gospel according to Mark in the 10th chapter, chapter number 10. And we come this evening to verse number 32, verse number 32. And as we come to this portion of Scripture, we find it is a very fitting portion of Scripture as we consider this evening uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper and exactly what the Lord's Supper uh, is a, an ordinance of and, and what it concerns as we come around the Lord's table to commemorate his death. And so as we come to Mark chapter 10 and verse number 32, the Bible said, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. And they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I'd like for you to look, if you would please, in verse number 32 as we 
consider this thought uh, here this evening. The Bible says, and as they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. I want to just consider this this evening as they followed, as they followed. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to follow him. And as he has uh, spoken to them on more than one occasion in the gospel of Mark, he is helping his disciples understand that they are following him ultimately to Jerusalem, ultimately to Calvary, where he will give his life as an atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came, as Mark portrays him, as a servant who has come, as he said in verse number uh, 45, he has come not to be ministered to, but to minister himself unto others. As we understand, Mark is writing primarily to a Roman audience. So he is writing primarily to people who are slaves. They are servants, and they're hearing the message of a new king who himself is not a king like any king they know. He is a king who has come not to be ministered unto, but he is a king who is coming to minister to serve his people. Aren't you glad we have a God who loves us and who has given his life for us? And here the disciples are, they are following him. And I want you to note three things uh, here this evening concerning this group of men as they follow or and as they follow him. Notice number one, the fear of the followers. The fear of the followers. The Lord Jesus Christ in verse number 32, they're on their road to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. Now, Normally, when we refer to a geographical location and we say we're going up, we we usually think about going north. But in terms of the Jews of the day and their language, when they spoke of going to Jerusalem, regardless of the direction that they were traveling, whether it be north, south, east, or west, they always referred to going to Jerusalem as going up. Remember, Jerusalem is the city of God. It is the place where the temple of God is, and they are coming to worship God when they go to Jerusalem. And so here are the disciples and the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going up to Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus Christ is going this time to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly life because as he goes to Jerusalem, the destination is Calvary. It is the cross. He will give his life. And as we have discovered, the disciples were looking along with the nation for a Messiah that would deliver them, a Messiah that would deliver them from political oppression, Uh, a, a Messiah who would establish his kingdom. And we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is a king. He is not just a king. He is the king, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, and he is coming to establish his kingdom. 
But when he came the first time, he did not come to reign. He came to die upon the cross of Calvary. He came as the sacrifice for our sin. And so as he has prepared his disciples and as he has tried to teach them, to communicate and convey to them what he is going to do, now finally they're going up to Jerusalem with Calvary in sight. The Bible said they were amazed, they were astonished. This moment had finally come. And as they followed, they're following Jesus. Where are they following him to? They're following him to the place of his betrayal, the place of his arrest, the place of his scourging and suffering, and the place of his death. And they're going with him to that place. And the Bible said they were afraid. They were fearful. There are times when the Lord Jesus Christ leads us as believers along the paths of our lives, when we get the news of some illness that is unexpected, when we go through some trial or some hardship, or when we go through a period of life when everything seems to be in a chaotic state and nothing seems to make sense, and we wonder why is it that things are happening on the contrary to the way that we expected or the way that we would anticipate for them to go. And, and we begin to question, what is happening? Uh, has the Lord forgotten about us? Are we heading into a dark period? Are we heading into the end? What's going to happen to us? And our hearts and our souls are gripped with fear. That's where these disciples are. They're afraid. They're in the presence of Jesus, and they're afraid. And so the Lord Jesus addresses their fear. By the way, aren't you glad we have a God who cares when we're afraid? And so he took again the 12 and began in verse 32 to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death. And, and I can imagine myself there with the disciples, and I'm wondering, how is this going to happen? What are they going to condemn him of? How are the chief priests? They, they don't even have the authority to put somebody to death. The Romans are in charge. How could this possibly be? And we understand that Peter has already rebuked him once for saying that he was going to the cross, and there's no doubt that they in their minds are trying to determine, as he tells them this, a way out. This is not what they signed up for. By the way, do you ever feel that way? I didn't sign up for this. I, I thought I would get saved, get in church, everything would go great, my kids would do perfectly, and, and my marriage would be wonderful, and everybody on the job would love me, and I would be healthy and wealthy, and everything would go wonderful, and I would just be ushered into heaven on flowery beds of ease. But that's not the way it works, is it? You see, the Lord has called us to follow him, and he tells us that this road is paved with suffering. And they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him 
to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. Aren't you amazed by the detail? Because you and I have something uh, that the disciples don't have. We have the perspective. We've seen the end of the story. But at this moment in time, this is all news to them. Here's their Lord and Master, their Savior, the one who came walking to them upon the water, the one who was thronged by the crowds who were trying just to get in to touch him, the one who delivered the demoniac, the one who raised the dead, the one who gave strength to the lame, the one who brought sound to the deaf and light to the blind. That one, yes, that one is going to die on the cross. And he depicts it for them in great detail to foretell of his sufferings. And by the way, if you read the Old Testament, all through it, the Bible speaks of his death. Read Psalm chapter number 22, Isaiah chapter number 53, the Lord Jesus Christ foretelling of his suffering and giving it to us in explicit detail and then seeing it fulfilled as they will see it in just a few days and then looking back upon it and recollecting his words, knowing that this man who spoke to them was the very son of God. And they're fearful. But I'm glad he doesn't end it there. Look at the last statement in verse 34. And the third day, he shall rise again. On the third day, he shall rise again. And they got that. They heard that. Did they fully embrace that? Did they fully understand it? I don't believe they did. You, you read later in Luke chapter 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and, and Jesus joins them along the path. And uh, he said, why, is you, why are you cast down? Why, why, are you, why are you discouraged? Why are you depressed? And they said, haven't you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? They're talking to him, and they don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. And they said, we thought he's the one that we trusted to deliver us. And they said, and beside all this, this is the third day. Oh, and by the way, the disciples did tell us they went to the grave and he wasn't there. <laughs> and then he said, oh, ye slow of heart, ye fools, slow to believe. You see, here we understand that the disciples are comforted with the assurance of his resurrection. Yes, I'm going to the cross, but I want you to know it's going to be okay. And by the way, we are going to suffer in this life, are we not? But can I tell you it's going to be okay? We have a home in heaven. The Bible says that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The Bible says our light affliction that is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And Jesus says, yes, you're fearful, but let me comfort you in your fear. I'm going to rise again the third day. And so we see the fearfulness of the followers. Then I want you to see the second thing, and that is the foolishness of the followers. The foolishness. 
Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. And an overwhelming sense, an overwhelming awesomeness of the knowledge of that has settled on their souls. And they're fearful. But in the midst of their fearfulness, they're still embracing their foolishness. It's ingrained into them just like it's ingrained into us. Notice it, if you would, please, in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Seems as if their timing's a little off, doesn't it? We hate to hear that you're going to be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes, condemned to death, delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, scourged, spat upon, and killed. But before you do that, we have some very important question to ask you. Doesn't that sound like most of us? There are times when we just don't get it. You can grow up in church and still not get it. You know that? You can hear a hundred sermons and still not get it. The only way that we get it is when the Holy Spirit of God reveals it to us and when we become willing to receive it. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Here's what we notice about them. We, we notice their indifference. He's going to die. They do not seem very sympathetic, do they? Their indifference. And why are they indifferent? What has caused their indifference? They're consumed with what? Themselves. They're consumed with themselves. Why are we indifferent to God's word? Why are we indifferent to the movement of the Holy Ghost? Why are we indifferent to the condition of the lost? Why are we indifferent to the desires of God that all men might know him and that we as his servants would spread the news of the gospel? Why is it that we find everything in the world to be concerned about and we fail to be concerned about what he's concerned about? It is because of our indifference. They're concerned about their desires, not his death. There's a second thing we see that marks their foolishness, and that's their ambition. Grant unto us, verse 37, that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. They're an ambitious bunch, aren't they? Well, Lord, we understand the time has come. We don't really fully understand all that you're doing here, but we, we do believe you, the Son of God, and we know that you're going to rise again. You're going to usher in the kingdom, and we want to be sure that we've got prime seats when it all happens. We sort of joke around about uh, having assigned seats in church, right? But the joke sort of gets pretty serious when somebody's in your seat or on a fellowship Sunday when you want to be first to the dessert table. 
You know, that's ingrained in us, isn't it? It's built into us. Ambition. What about us? What about our standing? What about our status? We don't want to be left behind. We don't want to be last. The children want to be first in line. They want to be at the head of the line, and so do the adults. That's a part of our sin nature. And so their ambition to be known, to be great, to be recognized, to be patted on the back comes through. Then we see something else that marks their foolishness, and that is, and I mean this in the kindest way I can say it, their ignorance. It's not that they're ignorant people, but they are ignorant of the fact that Jesus Christ is dying on the cross to redeem them. Notice in verse number 38, but Jesus said unto them, you know not what ye ask. <laughs> That's the definition of ignorance, isn't it? You really don't understand what you're asking for here, gentlemen. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? This is where their ignorance comes shining through and their arrogance, quite frankly. And they said unto him, we can. They could not have been more wrong. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now there's a lot here in this passage, in these verses. You see, they said, Yes, we can drink of that cup, but they had no idea what was in the cup. Can I tell you what was in the cup? God's judgment against the sins of all humanity throughout all ages. Our iniquity in its fullest extent, in its most bitter taste, filled the cup. And these men were unable to drink it and even if they possessed some ability, they were definitely unqualified. Because in order to drink it, you must be the sinless son of God. And they are not sinless. Rather, they are sinful. And that's where we find ourselves, full of our sin, unable to satisfy God's judgment upon iniquity to think that we would ever think that we could obtain righteousness, that we're pretty good folks, that we could get to heaven on our own, that we could somehow with our self-effort satisfy God is the height and the epitome of human arrogance. And so they said, yes, Lord, we can drink it, but notice his response to them. He said, in verse number 39, ye shall indeed, indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. It shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. The Lord says, yes, you will taste in some measure that cup that I'm going to taste. 
That is the call of the disciple to reproach, as he said this morning, come to the rich young ruler, take up your cross, bear the reproach of identifying with me in my death, die to self, die to the appetites and the cravings and the attitudes of a world in rebellion against me, die to it all, take up your cross, forget about yourself and your selfish ambition, and come and follow me. And he said, you will taste it, but you have no idea what you asked for. So the foolishness of the disciples is demonstrated in their indifference and their ambition and in their ignorance, and then finally in their rivalry. Notice in verse number 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be much what? Displeased. With who? With James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. Here he deals with their rivalry. Now the two things here, they had conflicting attitudes. As soon as one tried to uh, secure his seat in the kingdom, the other ten were not happy. And conflicts arose. Conflicts arose. Because to be honest with you, even though the other ten did not ask for the chief seat, they were upset at the thought that they would not get it. Isn't that amazing how that happens in all of us? We just competed in volleyball and soccer. Our teams did well. People were acknowledged for awards. Some received, some didn't. Do you imagine that everyone who didn't was excited for everyone who did? Or do you imagine there was a thought in their hearts that said, I should have had that. Why didn't I get that? You see, something as simple as that reveals what is in us already, and it's not just in children who compete in sports and don't get awards. It's far greater in the parents of those children. I know I've been there. To think that your child is overlooked or not appreciated, that's difficult, isn't it? or to think that you are overlooked and not appreciated, that you have somehow been left at the back of the line and forgotten, and we have forgotten. And let me tell you what we have forgotten. We have forgotten that we are worthy of hell. And Jesus, in his mercy, has redeemed us and brought us who were strangers and aliens into the commonwealth of Israel. He has placed us in his body. He has given us a home in heaven. He has secured us eternally in his hand. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. But if we don't get everything the way we anticipate we should get it, oh, how our attitudes sour and conflict arises within our hearts. And so there's conflicting attitudes that are revealed in his, 
in this rivalry, and then there are corrected attitudes as the Lord Jesus deals with them. And may he deal with us. May he deal with me. Because preachers are notorious for this. And there is more of this in me than I would ever want to admit. And so we see it here. And there's more of this in you than you would ever want to admit. He, 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 he uses something that they're very familiar with. Verse 42. Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. They lived under Roman rule. Power was appreciated, admired, adored in Roman culture. The haves like to exert their power over the have-nots, their influence. And if you wanted to be somebody great, you had to have authority. You had to have a position of leadership and exercise lordship over others. And this was ingrained in the Roman culture, and it was ingrained in the Jewish mindset of this day. We need power and authority. We need to be recognized. We need to be acknowledged. Somebody needs to tell me how great of a guy I really am. And everybody needs to know it. And the Lord said, wait a minute. That's how the kingdoms of this world operate. But that is not how the kingdom of heaven operates. There's a vast difference. And so here we see a fundamental change of mind that we must go through if we're going to understand how the kingdom of heaven really works. And so we see it here. Notice, if you would, please. Verse 43, but so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. That's your servant, your slave. And whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. One commentator spoke of watching a great golf tournament a great match of golf that was being played, and uh, the golfer was in the sand trap. He'd hit his ball into the trap, and he, with great precision, got the ball out of the hazard and onto the green and made the putt, and everybody cheered and talked about the greatness of that golfer. And all the while, he had his eyes on the caddy. The caddy is the one who carries the golfer's bags. He's the one who advises the golfer on his shot. He gives him the yardage and tells him the lies uh, of the green and the, and the slope and how the putt will break, and he, he is basically the servant of the golfer. There's no trophy for the caddy, only for the golfer. The applause is not for the caddy. It's only for the golfer. The recognition, not for the caddy, but for the golfer. And he said, I watched as that caddy raked that sand trap to precision, preparing it perfectly for the next golfer so that when the ball comes into the trap, the golfer who will enter that trap will find that trap in perfect condition 
so that he can play his next shot. And he said, I became aware of true greatness. It wasn't the man getting the glory on the green. It was the man unseen in the sand trap who without any recognition, without any applause, did what he was supposed to do. May God help us as his servants not to be worried about who gets the credit, but to be concerned about doing what we've been called to do. Someone said it's amazing what can be done when no one is concerned about who gets the credit. Do you know what can divide a team and keep a team from reaching its full potential? It's when individuals on that team forget that the game is about the team and begin to think that the game is about them. And so here they are. They're following Jesus. We see the fearfulness of the disciples. We see the foolishness of the disciples. And I come to verse 45, and we close here. We see the freedom of the disciples or the freedom of the followers. Notice what he says. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. You know what a ransom is delivered for? It is a payment. Now, when we think about a ransom, we think of someone who's been uh, unlawfully kidnapped or held against their will and a ransom is delivered. And, and today that is used in, in that context. But the word ransom has the idea of making a payment to deliver someone from bondage. Perhaps they've committed a crime or they've, they've done damage against someone. Perhaps uh, an accident took place and, and there is a, a damage that was incurred and therefore a ransom was to be paid to, to make restitution for the damage that was done. Let me tell you what we have done. We are all sinners and we have offended a holy God. And our God is a just God. He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. Oh, he's a merciful God. Yes, he's a loving God, but he is a just God. And if we are to experience forgiveness and freedom, the debt must be paid. And what the disciples wanted is they wanted the glory of the kingdom without the pain and suffering of the cross. But there will be no glory without the pain and suffering of the cross. And for the Christian, oftentimes we want the glory, but we don't want the pain and the suffering. And when it comes to us, when it comes to us, Peter said we consider it strange, but we shouldn't. It is the road that we have decided that we're going to travel as we follow Jesus, a road of affliction, a road of death to self, a road of reproach. That is the road that we're on. Just recently, in a moment of, of uh, joy and celebration, I was confronted with things that weren't so joyous and celebratory. And can I just tell you that I threw a pity party? Have you ever thrown a pity party? I, I'm going to be honest. I'm just going to tell you. I said to myself, this is ridiculous. 
This is just utterly ridiculous. You can't enjoy anything. There's got to be a problem with everything. And I just, I'm telling you, I had a great pity party. You know my wife never comes to my pity parties. <laughs> Don't you think she should be nicer to me? There were three guests at my pity party, me, myself, and I. And we were having a time. And the Holy Spirit said to me, what do you think I called you to do? Because if you don't deal with that, somebody else has to. And I put you there to deal with it. Now grow up, buttercup. You see, the Christian life Christian life calls us to follow Jesus. And as we follow him, we understand where that road leads. It leads to freedom. There are people in bondage all around us. What do they need? Freedom. What do we need to be free from? We need to be free from the oppression of sin. People are in bondage to sin. And the only way to be free from it is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made the payment on the cross for us. There was no other way. There was no other way for us to be ransomed from our sin, to be free from sin, but the payment that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made on the cross of Calvary. If there were any other way to heaven, then his payment was in vain. But there was no other way. There is no other way. Free not only from the oppression of sin, but free from the condemnation and the shame and the guilt. You know, I meet a lot of people who can't get over things. They can't get over their past. They can't get over the shame of their sin. And do you know what the devil is? He's the accuser of the brethren. Can I tell you that Jesus Christ remembers our sin against us no more? He separates it as far as the east is from the west. He chooses not to remember it against us. And when he looks on our record, and, and by the way, Satan will remind him of our record, and he certainly will remind us of our sinful past. But when the Lord opens the books and he sees what is charged against us, here's what he sees, a crimson red stamp that says paid in full. I am free from guilt and condemnation. I am free from the oppression of sin. And I am free to trust Jesus and serve him and follow him. And so they didn't understand why he had to go to Jerusalem. They didn't understand why he had to die. But he's going to give them freedom. And when they look back on it, after his resurrection, they're going to see what Jesus did as they followed him. Are you following Jesus? Maybe this evening you're afraid. You're thinking, I didn't expect this. I didn't expect these difficulties. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe tonight you need to be reminded what God has called us to do. You need to be reminded that he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us and that he will deliver us from these light afflictions and that they work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory 
And perhaps this evening you find yourself identifying with the foolishness of the followers. There are times when it just we get so consumed with ourselves, we we get offended, we get we feel overlooked, we feel unappreciated, and we lose sight of what this is all about. And may God help us this evening as we think about the death of Jesus that we need his discernment, we need his wisdom, we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand what this thing is really all about. And then may God help us to experience and enjoy the freedom that we have in Jesus. Free from oppression of sin, free from guilt and shame, free from the penalty of hell. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.